It's behind the headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly opportunity to sit down with award-winning journalists from all over the East End to talk about the week's headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish at the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, the website 27East.com, and Express Magazine. My co-host is Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Hey, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good to have you here. We have a good panel this week. We have Alec Lewis, who is the staff writer at the Riverhead Local, uh, the website. Hey, Alec, how are you? Good. How are you? Good to have you here. Christopher Walsh, who is the staff writer at the uh, East Hampton Star. Hey, Christopher. Morning, everyone. And Beth Young, who's the editor of the East End Beacon. Morning, Beth. Morning, Joe. So let's start, Alec, with uh, a regional story that I quite honestly, um, we've been sort of watching from afar. So we're going to we're going to talk with you a little bit about what's going on. Uh, Suffolk County has decided uh, to step into the to the fray as far as the asylum seekers who are being shipped to uh, New York State goes and asking them not to be sent out to Suffolk County. This follows Riverhead, which had a similar measure uh, a couple weeks back. Can you tell us a little bit more about this issue? You know, it's one of the things I think we need to stress here, and it's been something that's been said at the national level, is these um, men and women and and uh, I assume families are being mischaracterized a lot as illegals. And they're not illegally in this country. They are asylum seekers who are legally in this country, right? Yeah. So they're um, people who are coming into the country, whether... Um, and and they have to put in a claim to the federal government, um, you know, saying that uh, they're fleeing some sort of violence or some sort of persecution. Um, and then they come into the country and the, the whole debate kind of surrounded about the influx that would come in after Title 42, which was a COVID-19 era measure, ended. And um, previous to um, Title 42 ending you had to remain in basically in Mexico if you were claiming asylum to the United States across the border because um, how it went was it was like a COVID health risk. Um, but now that Title 42 has expired, the asylum seekers coming into the country can stay within the United States. And instead of staying um, in a lot of the cities around the border, uh, governors have been busing them out to different states, cities around the country so that they don't have to bear like all of the migrants that are that are there. So Texas specifically, I think, has been sending them to New York City because New York City is a sanctuary city. Um, it does not uh, it's law enforcement. Uh, one of its policies, it doesn't really cooperate with um with ICE, which is the federal like uh, immigration enforcement and deportation service and um, service agency. <laughs> um, and uh, so if as long as you're not in like legal trouble, I think, then you're you're pretty safe to, to live there. But these people are in here for a legal process and they're supposedly, you know, they have to make their case to a judge. But What's assumed is that they're going through some sort of persecution in their home country that they have to flee. And that's why they're coming to the United States. And to be fair, Alec, I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of the migrant men and women are going to be here anyway, right? They they make their way into different different cities in the United States once they they apply for asylum. Um, that's a that's a typical occurrence, right? We 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 get people people into the communities in that way probably quietly all the time yeah yeah that's right i think that it's because mostly there's a bunch of programs um around with like through i think nonprofits that um assign asylum seekers to like sponsors and there's a right. fair amount of people who sponsor um asylum seekers in the east end and around long island so that's um, family members in in a, in a lot of yeah, cases. Yeah, family members will will sponsor an asylum seeker and come you know come live with them in in the area. Yeah, there was actually in. yeah, and there's a woman who spoke um at a town board meeting recently, uh, kind of against the executive order that Supervisor Yvette Aguiar 
um, had instituted before kind of Suffolk had as trying to do its own thing, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But she um, actually worked for a nonprofit, I think, uh, on the on the border. And she had sponsored an asylum seeker uh, for a few years. And unfortunately, the asylum seeker uh, passed away from cancer before he could be granted asylum. Mm. But, you know, people taken asylum seekers out of the kindness of their own heart. I mean, that's, you know, people have compassion for people who are fleeing violence, whatever it may be. I mean, you know, if you're LGBTQ, I mean, you have a pretty high chance of violence in many Latin American and Central American, um, you know, cities and and stuff i there's there's a lot of things to flee from i mean gang violence i mean it's it's really hard for a lot of people um in those countries uh to live uh, with with the fear that they could that they could experience you know in their backyards so alec what is steve balone the Suffolk County executive, and you had mentioned Yvette Aguilar, uh, the uh, the uh, Riverhead Town supervisor. What are the measures that they're taking? Are they they are basically saying we don't want any of these people to end up in our? Is, is that correct? Is that what what they're That's what they're asking? No, so, I think the count the county's being a little uh, being being softer. What the county do? Correct me if I'm wrong, Alec. The the county has has set up a commission or a working group to to kind of look at um the best way forward if if these asylum seekers um do do make their way to suffolk county i think you know that from what i saw the toughest restriction was was it, it mandated that any um hotels or motels or or, or living facilities um would have to get permission from the county to to accept uh, asylum seekers if another municipality was trying to put those asylum seekers in um in those facilities but i think the difference between riverhead and, and the county and the riverhead was just a flat no the you know we're we're not going to allow any asylum seekers in, yeah. in the town the county is saying let's 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 model um you know let's model how we do this after um, after the governor's, uh, Governor Kathy Hochul um, had had issued some guidelines, the governor's guidelines would would come into play with the county. Is is that all correct? The county legislature is at odds with the executive. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I mean, generally, there's um, I think at this point, like uh, a legitimate concern that, and that's why. Steve Ballone issued the executive order that New York City Mayor Eric Adams might like bust migrants and and make deals with different hotels around the state to to house you know migrants temporarily um, from New York City because just the whole system there the whole homeless system is just so overburdened and everybody coming in from Title Forty Two after Title Forty Two expired is burdening it even even more so um the thing about this though is that like new york city mayor eric adams um has kind of been very vague about whether or not he would uh send migrants to suffolk county he's kind of been towing this line where he says um you know new york city is doing its share it's time for other you know municipalities across the state to do their part to do their basically like their humanitarian duty and and you know and and house some of these people and um and so he his press secretary actually emailed me um i think it was last week saying that you know not not saying you know whether or not uh places uh, hotels in riverhead were being considered or not you know he basically wouldn't give me an answer um but he's He's kind of towing that line saying that, you know, hey, there needs to be some equity in how um, people, you know, take take the people coming here to New York and, and, and seeking to, asylum. And to be honest, like um, New York City, there's I mean, they're kind of saying that we'll we'll take this, but it doesn't seem that like Suffolk County and and Riverhead and and other municipalities across the state 
really agree with how New York City's policy of like taking them in. Not like they really have much of a choice. I mean, they're kind of being bussed in from other states in the country, border states. So I wanted I wanted to make that point too. It's not just Suffolk County. It's a, a lot of upstate uh, yeah, counties true. have also have also tried to this tack as well, right? Yeah, um, no. They already have executive orders in place. I mean, the first ones to do it, I think, were were the ones that are currently in um, a lawsuit with the with the NYCLU, and the that's um, Rockland County and Orange County, which were the first to kind of get um, New York City um, proposes to bus migrants to like hotels there, and so that's kind of erupted into like two separate lawsuits. One of one of them is. Um, a state case where um, Rockland and Orange have sued have sued the New York City and successfully received like a restraining order to have them stop sending migrants there. And then, um, although I think Orange County got like around forty people into a hotel there um, from New York City, and then the other one is actually from. I believe some of the migrants who arrived in Orange County, and that's against Rockland and Orange on behalf from the NYCLU on behalf of those asylum seekers that came in and were bused to Orange County. And that's basically saying, well, you're violating the Constitution in that, you know, in in the fact that you're limiting the travel of these people based on their race, based on their national origin. Um and that that case is kind of pending at this point. Um, although there was some news that emerged, I, I saw this morning about the fact that the judge seemed to be um, implying uh, that it was that he was pretty amicable to NYCLU's case by kind of saying that uh, it, it kind of it looked like uh, Jim Crow. It smelled of Jim Crow laws. Wow. So. That is going to be an interesting development. I think they have the lawyers in in that case, which is a federal case, have until Monday to um, to uh, file their next uh, their next documents, and then that, and then he'll decide whether or not the case is. The judge will decide whether or not the case will go forward past the point that it is right now. I feel like we need a little perspective on this topic. There was a lot of rhetoric uh, among the political circles in advance of the end of Title 42, um, which, by the way, that the, the way that was being used, essentially saying, well, we're not letting asylum seekers into the country while their, their uh, applications are being processed because we're worried about COVID. There was absolutely no evidence that anybody COVID was here there nobody was bringing COVID in it was being used as as a a way to limit access to the country you know because we just don't have a, a system that works right now but my point is the number of people there was a lot of rhetoric ahead of this that said people were going to be pouring over the border when it ends we're going to just be inundated it didn't happen the no, number of people coming really over actually fell. So I wonder, you know, I, saw they, head- I mean, the government, the government put in, uh, I, I don't know how effectively, but there were a lot of new procedures and, and, and restrictions that were were put into place um, to kind of counteract uh, the, you know, the elimination of, of that. Act. So so as I understand it, uh, yeah, there were people that were, uh, I think, Biden deployed military forces like humanity for humanitarian aid at the border um, to kind of, uh, you know, help people that are coming in and um, after Title 42 expired. But like it, I, I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding for uh, what happened when Title 42 ended. I mean, people had to stay, uh, you know, at, across the border in Mexico like to a point, but then they were able to come into the country. So uh, asylum seekers have still been like coming into the country, I think steadily for the past, oh, maybe, you know, 
two years or so. I think there was maybe an emergency thing for the federal government. I'm not too sure that just kind of like stopped asylum seekers from coming in, like in general, but uh, the Title 42 policy itself, like that, you know, it, people have still been coming in and New York City has been getting before Title 42 expired migrants being bussed in from Texas. So this has been a consistent, like, thing that has been happening for a while. Title 42 <laughs> blocked people at, at at the border, but if people got across the border and, and then claimed asylum, they were already in the country and Title 42 wouldn't wouldn't apply to them. And I think that's mm. um I think that's kind of what, what you're referring to, Alec, because there were still a lot of people that that were coming in. I'm gonna do air quotes that nobody can see, but air quotes illegally um you know which by the way is just that's just flat not true it is a legal process and 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 yeah it's you know i just feel like we need to stress that 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 we're not talking about we're not talking about people who are who are crossing over illegally go ahead what one of the big issues this is a legal process and once this process starts there's a six-month clock before people can apply for work permits so they Mm. they be here but they can't work and that's what's putting them in the desperate situation that they're in you know they need to be in homeless they don't have the money to go get an apartment and they can't get a job and this this was an issue for a lot of people who were coming here from ukraine they wanted to work they were ready to work but they had to wait that six months um to get away yeah, i feel like the whole thing this whole conversation comes down to we have a failed immigration policy we just do not yeah. have a policy that works um yeah. to deal with with the realities of the situation on our borders yeah yeah bill you, um, did you want to say what you i'm sorry <laughs> i wanted to piggyback off of it but if you want to talk bill no i i just my my point in saying illegally joe is is rather than than you know during during title 42 following the guidelines of applying for um for that status as they're crossing the border people were illegally crossing the border and then applying for for that status except that that's the way the process works you you turn yourself in to authorities and then seek asylum that that's the process at at, at the border before you come Mm -hmm. into the country these were people who were coming into the country and then applying for the process not at the border is 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 all i was referring to i think your point too that you made earlier is that they've set up an infrastructure now to allow people to apply for asylum without having to come to the border to do that. And I think that's probably a huge, it's at least one small step forward of yeah, setting they up try to, They try to set up phone apps and stuff, whether the effectiveness of those and how well they were working, um, I think was, was questionable. Um, but, but yeah, it, it's, a, it's, it, so is it a failed system or is it just the the fact that there are so many people who who need asylum and are seeking asylum that it's just difficult to um to get those people processed the other point i wanted to make is that you know that that when when you're when you you're going through that process when you seek asylum and and you're you're granted an okay into into that process it can take years before a determination is made or before you see a judge and um, and, you know, and, and I think the critics of the process say that there's a lot of people, you know, seeking asylum just as a way to get into the country that may not, you know, th- that are that are using that system to to their effect, knowing that that they'll be OK to stay here for, you know, for a couple of years while it goes through the process. Mm-hmm. Alec, I want to give you the last word on this. Um, what, what do we do going forward? It, it, I mean, this policy is in place for the moment, right? It's in at the Suffolk County level. Well, you know, uh, kind of end off on what happened recently was um, on Thursday, the Suffolk County Legislature, which is at odds uh, with Steve Ballone, who went in his executive order kind of implied that the county would uh, look into um housing asylum seekers you know that he set up a task force like a deputy county executive was assigned to it um that sort of thing the suffolk county legislature's republican majority and i think there was one um democrat who also voted for it um hired a special counsel to investigate ways 
um, that the county can can legally stop this from happening. So um, that's where we are right now. And in Riverhead, um, Supervisor Yvette Aguiar, again, extended her executive order, um, barring, uh, you know, uh, saying that hotels, motels, um, homeless shelters, things like that. It can't accept migrants. Actually, for the homeless shelters, it's it's if if you're displacing somebody who is already there and and is homeless, then then you can't accept uh, migrants. But they can't really legally challenge if somebody's here and is homeless, and you know they come in and that doesn't happen. Its legality is actually is I think it's on pretty shaky ground. Um, a representative from the NYCLU says said to us that they're looking into the legality of Riverhead's executive order. Um, Ola of Eastern Long Island, the Latino advocacy group, um, is saying that it's flat out illegal. Their general counsel sent out a um, a memo uh, the other week, you know, laying out how this is illegal. It's an abuse of power, asking them to rescind the executive order. So that's where we are right now, and we'll see if um, if Riverhead or Suffolk County's uh, executive orders will be challenged. I mean, there's still that that federal case. You know, can the migrants move throughout the uh, the state freely? I mean, that's I guess that's at the heart of the case. It, you know, mm-hmm. because of their nationality, because of their race, is what the NYCLU is saying that they're being denied that right. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. thorny issue and it's a thorny issue at the national level but we're starting to see the repercussions of it here locally too uh thank you for reporting on it alec we'll keep a close eye on it moving forward uh this is behind the headlines on wliwfm i'm joe shaw my co-host is bill sutton we're with the express news group with us today is alec lewis of riverhead local christopher walsh of the east hampton star and beth young of the east end beacon uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about a story we had this week, Bill, about uh, the new striped bass regulations that are being enforced. And they come into effect, I believe, on July 1st. And they create a really odd situation that a lot of the, the local uh, boat captains, the folks who run the party party boats, as they're called, basically that allow people to go out and fish uh, on an individual basis, um, they say it's going to be really difficult for them. Striped bass is a really important um, target for those boats. Uh, And the new rules make it very difficult to bring any of those bass home, right? Yeah, I I think actually the the reviews of the of the charter captains were mixed. Some were in favor and and some were opposed. But yeah, that was so so the federal fishery managers um, have have implemented these new rules. that that um it sets a slot limit it's called which is the the size of fish that that would be determined as keepers meaning you you could you could keep the fish you don't have to release them back into into the water um previously that slot limit was fish um striped bass between 28 and 35 inches but the new rules cut the larger size down to 31 inches. So it's odd because usually you think about what, you know, what kind of fish you can keep. And there was always just a minimum size and anything over that size um, it was was harvestable. And in this case, it's protecting both the, the smaller fish and the larger fish. So anything um anything larger than 31 inches, you would you would have to uh to throw back or um smaller than 28 inches and that that leaves a pretty narrow window mm-hmm. of of sizes of of fish that, that you can keep and the the charter captains that you know that that are opposed to the measure you know they they make their living off people coming out and getting um you know getting their 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 limit of of these fish and being able to go back and have enough fish in the in the freezer for for a couple dinners and and if if um if the fishermen come out on the boats and they can't keep enough fish to do that, um, people are going to stop running the boats, I, I, I guess. And, you know, this is an effort to to preserve the, you know, to preserve the line of, of the striped bass that had seen 
um, you know, a, a decrease in population for whether it was from overfishing or or whatever reason to allow them to repopulate. And this is along, you know, the entire um, East Coast, but uh, it, it really affects uh, Montauk and, and, and Hampton Bays and, and the East End um, in particular, is, is that's where a lot of these fish kind of hang out during, you know, during the peak season. Yeah, and I th- thought it was interesting that some of the boat captains suggested that these new rules could actually backfire because you're only allowing keeper fish between 28 and 31 inches. The idea being that the bigger fish are breeders and the smaller fish are growing. And so the the goal is to help the population. But the problem is that means more fish that you're catching and releasing. And so many of the fish that are caught and released are injured or harmed in some way. And so they don't survive when they're, when they're, or they're not released properly. There's a way to release fish. You know, a lot of fishermen just throw the fish overboard uh, especially novice fishermen uh, that don't know, but there's a way to release fish that allows them to re- to recover from the shock. Uh, they're saying that this may actually be bad for the populations. Um, it's well, it, bad, bad for the population, or or if the fish isn't going to survive being released, then you know that's, that's just kind of a waste. I mean, you you you've caught the fish, you release it, and and it and it dies. I mean, what what is gained at, at that point? Really? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, this is this is not a small issue because, uh, Beth, this is a big uh, part of the local economy, especially in the summertime. Right. I mean, these these uh, these charter fishing boats are, are a big part of the East End economy uh, and a big part of the, the history. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I, I think part of the problem is that there was such a, a huge uh, balloon in the striped bass, you know, uh, several years back that they kind of dragged their feet about regulations. And now it's like playing catch up. The regulations have to be more than uh, more than they would have been if they'd been implemented sooner. So and, and I think there are a lot of fisheries that are like that. You know, people don't, don't want to rock the boat until it's too late. No, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so it'll be an interesting summer as far as that goes. Uh, I want to move on. I want to bring in Christopher Walsh and talk a little bit about, um, I, you know, this. I thought this week was all about fire uh, in the region. We, I don't know if people noticed, but a lot of folks noticed a lot of smoke. There's smoke from the Eastern Canadian wildfires that, that's making its way into our area. But we had three big fires on the South Fork this week. But the one I wanted to talk about was the one in Montauk, where a fairly notable restaurant uh, building burned to the ground, right? Right. It's a week ago uh, this morning, in fact, overnight, what was formerly Rick's Krabby Cowboy Cafe burned completely down. Um, Terrible tragedy. We don't know the cause as of yet, to the best of my knowledge. And a colleague of mine actually reported on it, not me. But... um, it's been there a very long time. Um, it, it brought to mind to me, I remember in about this time of the year in 1989, I think it was um, watching from Salivar's restaurant, watching across the the waterway, the deep sea club burned completely to the ground. And it looked, the picture that I saw that's uh, in the star looked just like that to me. It's, it's burned into my memory, no pun intended, uh, seeing a place go completely up in smoke like that, which is very sad. Um, I'll tell a funny aside about that one. Years ago, that was called the Blue Moon, and it was owned by a surfer guy, and it was a big restaurant with a lot of late night um, partying going on. Um, one night, I was playing in a rock and roll band with some friends from school, and who was there but Ace Freely of Kiss? Wow, <laughs> not, not in the band at the time, and Anton Fig, who was in the David Letterman band at the time, and uh, um, the word was Anton was already passed out, but uh, Ace insisted via some flunkies of his that were in attendance that he sit in with us and uh it was a wreck it was a train wreck <laughs> but it's great fun and there were something like 600 people there packed very densely around us to see ace uh performing uh jumping jack flash or sympathy for the devil with us and uh with my guitar fall on his behind uh and almost put his head through the bass drum quite <laughs> <laughs> oh, story. I wish I, wish I had a awesome story, like story that, that is, that is a great story to tell. It happened, so, but but was, go ahead. 
we should mention that place was about ready to open up as yes. a new restaurant, right? Yeah. That was one of the interesting things about this was uh, the fire occurred just as uh, it was getting ready to open for Memorial Day weekend. Right. The timing is interesting, but can't really say anything about it just yet because we don't know. Yeah, I think that the town is looking into that. We had a couple of house fires locally, too, that really tested uh, the local fire departments, um, who I think really performed admirably. I think in one case, uh, I believe it was in Remsenburg, uh, they really worked to save the house next door, which was was threatened. That was the Remsenburg fire, wasn't it, Bill? Yeah, I I, I, I believe I think so. It, yeah. was. it was it was melting the uh, the plastic siding on on the yeah. house next door, and and the firefighters um, with Eastport firefighters. Um, it's in the Eastport district. They they said that they realized that that the house um, the house that was uh, the original house on fire. They realized once they realized that it was a lost cause that it wasn't going to be saved. They really turned their focus to to the house next door to to save that, and there was minimal damage to to that house. So I mean that was it was I'm I'm sure a good call when you get a you know a fire that that hot. It's just so easy to 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 spread around. It, it just seemed like. Seem like there's been a lot of fires lately, a lot of house fires, and and I I, I wonder, and nothing to back this up, whether that just has to do with people getting um, getting homes ready for for the summer, and you know, um, you know, working on on remodeling and and air conditioning for the first time, maybe, and 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 that kind of stuff, and just um, maybe it's a cautionary tale to for people to to be careful. I know that the watermill fire that. That those people were definitely doing um some some spring remodeling on, on the house and had left left the house and when they came back it was you know it was fully engulfed so um be careful as you get ready for for a hot summer yeah and it's a reminder too about the job that the volunteer fire departments do uh all over the region uh and those men and women really deserve a, a tip of the hat to for the job that they do um sure for and- the for, for the montauk fire i mean you know obviously the you know the department out there you know um you know fought, fought that that blaze but it's so it's so far out there and, and all these neighboring departments just um are automatically called to respond to so when there's one fire you're talking four five sometimes six departments that are that are responding to that all volunteers and and in this case in the in the middle of the night um jumping out of bed to get to the fire absolutely you mentioned too that uh the wildfires in canada you know that's obviously really troubling that at this time of year and in canada of all places there are wildfires um to such a degree a small piece of good news on that is that last week we learned that the offshore substation for the South Fork wind farm is making its way up the coast for installation this summer as will the the turbines themselves and the the um uh and the poles on which they're going to sit so by year's end we are supposedly we think on track for that our wind farm to be operational and that's going to you know begin to or help to move us away from fossil fuels um we're in a perilous situation as you may know i spent a few months over the winter collaborating on a book about climate change that uh, hopefully will come out one day soon and um it's just something that's always on our minds here that um, we're very susceptible to sea level rise and, of course, extreme weather events and uh, or vulnerable, I should say. And uh, the wind farm becoming operational is a small piece of good news, I think. However, everything being interdependent, commercial fishermen are very much against it um, and, and still to a degree fighting it. But it does seem that uh, this is a an ine- inevitability at this point with other wind farms in development as well. And the infrastructure is in place now, right? The the distribution line is finished. So the only thing that's left now is for the turbines to actually go up offshore. Yeah, I, I'm not sure as far as the cable being laid out to the farm site itself, but uh, uh, the onshore work was completed last month. Okay. So Beth, uh, I wanted to talk. You you had mentioned that there's some conversations taking place on the North Fork about affordable housing. Uh yeah, everywhere, right? Except in Riverhead. Except in Riverhead. Except in Riverhead. Um yeah, uh, Southold was um, kind of jumped on last minute to to um, 
to putting their referendum on the ballot for the community housing fund last year. So they're still putting together their housing plan, which I believe the South Fork towns have already done. I think um, they do. I think yeah. South Hampton and East Hampton both have housing plans in place, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the first draft of uh, the housing plan up here was uh, was presented last month, and they're looking to have a public hearing on it this summer. There's going to be a few informational meetings later in June. Um, but uh, one of the big things that um, the big takeaways for me from the housing plan um, document was sort of the idea that the need for housing really doesn't match the housing stock here. And um, uh so many more people are living alone. They they don't have families. Um, the 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 notion of a single family home is really kind of something that came out of the post war years in like the fifties and sixties, and it's really it it's not reflective of the needs or the desires of people who are who are living and working here now. Um, mm. So that's going to be, I think, m maybe a tougher sell for people who are used to the way things are and just want. And one thing I was reading the other day is this, there's this sort of notion that we're holding on to the idea of a single family home because we've already lost the nuclear family in this country. So just the idea that we have these houses that are indicative of this um, suburban bliss, but we don't have the demographics anymore to match it is kind That's of a really yeah. weird irony. Um, so, I mean, housing complexes, uh, I guess, everywhere are pretty controversial um on the north fork especially because it's so rural uh so um finding the right mix of ways to make this work i mean um th there's been a lot of talk up here about putting a lot of the money into um uh, down payment assistance for people but then you really can't help as many people and mm -hmm. and the cost of a house anywhere on the east end is really out of reach for a lot of working people. So then you start even getting into the idea of what, uh, who do we want to attract to this housing? Um, and you know, we need people who are doing all kinds of jobs here. We need we need the people who are doing the service industry jobs, but we, we don't have, giving them a down payment assistance grant is not going to help them stay here because it's just, you can't, you can't I, pay your job. I've been saying that from from day one is is you know the housing it has to be multi layered um, you know across across all the towns on, on the east end except for Riverhead Al um, <laughs> it has to be multi layered you you have to provide housing for um, you know for people that that can't afford to live and you have to provide housing for um, I don't want to say minimum wage workers but. But you know, low, low, lower salary workers, the service industry people, and you have to provide housing for you know for the for the mid level people, and that includes doctors and lawyers and and teachers and and all that that, that can't um, that, that can't afford to live on the east end. It has to incorporate all of those levels, I think, and I, I think we focus sometimes on one or the other. It's workforce or it's this or it's that, but but. Um, it just has to be a good big combination, and I think that's why the the CHF, the Community Housing Fund, I think that's why um, that's going to be, in my mind, so successful is because the the individual towns and and hopefully individual villages villages aren't included in that fund, but but I think like CPF will, if they have a project, they can approach approach the towns. Everybody can model what they need to their population, and it sounds like that's kind of what they're trying to do in in south hold beth, beth is, is just figure out what the population up there needs and and what uh, what the town can provide yeah there used to be a lot more multi-family homes on the east end and they, over time they were converted to single family homes and our zoning doesn't really make it friendly to reconvert them back so that's a conversation that needs to happen but there are going to be four informational meetings in june in south hold town in different hamlets uh june 7th at 6 at the south hold recreation center june 15th at 6 at cast uh the 20th at 6 at floyd memorial library and the 27th at five at the Mattituck Laurel Library. So these are all you can come out and hear what the town has to say and how it can help them and uh, give feedback on the plan. Beth, Beth did I see that um, they're considering in South Hold Town making like a, a housing department? Did I yeah. hear about that? Yeah, yeah that they correct? don't want to have a separate that? housing authority because the town board wants to have 
control. Control. Okay. Um, So um, so the town board likes that idea. I don't know if the public will. We'll see. (laughs) I'm really intrigued by the idea of of the changing nature of the the needs of housing on, on the entire East End. And the fact that I don't know that our policies reflect that yet, because I think you're right. I think there, there's certainly a need for more affordable, single-family owned, owned houses. Certainly there's a need for that. But there's also this parallel need, which may be larger, for rental properties. We, we've yeah. just lost rental properties, residential rental properties. We certainly have plenty of Airbnb opportunities and things like that. But for for year year round rentals we don't there's a lot of people in the market who could really use year round rentals and we just don't have them anymore and maybe part of the solution is a combination of that joe where if if somebody wants to buy a home and and you're giving them a first-time home buyer um incentives maybe you combine that with we'll we'll give you the down payment if you build an accessory apartment um as as part of that home um as as a rental and combine the two and kind of dictate it that way that you know we'll we'll help you get your your single family home but you've got to help some renters out um at the same time i think that would be interesting and and that would fit in a lot of different areas where you already have that single family zoning you've got to kind of tweak the code a little bit but you know we all know that that single family zoning um, contribute a lot to to where we're at now, and and making those accessory apartments affordable to build is essential. I mean, there's plenty of them out yeah. there, and they're not up to code. And frankly, you know, in the fire department, we walk into these places a lot of the time, and it's it's not good for anybody that they're illegal. Um, I think that's an important point. There's a lot of safety issues as far as that goes, and I wonder if yeah. there isn't a real interest in people creating accessory. Uh, accessory apartments, you know, on these single family properties. Uh, and that may help fill the need. I know that that's been a big focus of both East Hampton and Southampton town, because I think most people are willing to sort of accept that it's for some, for some reason, it's, it's more palatable than the idea of building a little cluster of, of apartments or townhouses. Yeah. Can I jump in well, on that? Sure, Chris. Um, sure. Thank you. Um, yes, the East Hampton Town Board is moving on um, code amendments that will make uh, allow for more uh, accessory apartments attached or detached on properties. And they've, they've um, softened the requirements considerably to encourage that more. But um, something that came out of yesterday's East Hampton Town Board meeting was um, a couple of resolutions among the nearly 100 resolutions that they voted on yesterday. Seriously. Wow. Um, wow. Three regarding... Um, the construction of 16 affordable houses. These are detached at 395 Panago Road in East Hampton. It's among a number of the um, affordable housing initiatives that the town board is is uh, working on presently. And funny you should say that, Beth, it's true. The paradox of our time is that we have bigger houses and smaller families, as uh, the Dalai Lama has said. Um, and, and so much of the housing stock out here sits empty so much of the year. But um, Definitely, we're going to need more density if we're going to house everyone who would like to live here and everyone who could um, participate in the service economy we have here and the uh, seasonal economy. So we need seasonal workforce housing as well. But as I can attest and I've said before on this show, owning your own home, this one is such a game changer after struggling to pay too much rent or even find a place to live for such a long time. So those three resolutions were really procedural, small matters, but are slowly moving it forward so that uh, 16 individuals or couples or families are going to have a place to live. Um, There's more under construction, too. But, you know, I'm thinking of this now because we just had a really beautiful Memorial Day weekend out here. The weather was just near perfect and we had a huge influx of visitors. And I talked to my friends in Montauk who own or work at businesses and, you know, they they said, yeah, it was a real good weekend. But, you know, we have to remember it's a vanishingly small window in which these folks have to make their money, you know, for the entire year. It's a really, really small window and uh, and it's on, you know, it happened now. So inevitably, when I talk to friends about how was business this weekend, it always comes back to staffing shortages and that yeah. always leads to housing shortages. So, um, yes, more density and yes, more housing. And um, Alec, that was such a great explanation about the immigration issue. Thanks for that. Oh, um, 
we we got to remember too. I, I just I can't not say that it's really sad that these um, understanding the difficulty of absorbing a huge number of migrants at the border is is a serious problem. But it's it's so cynical of these southern governors to use these people as pawns for political gain. Um, they are human beings, you know. There there are an awful lot of folks from Ecuador in this town, and in my normal day to day meetings, I'm you know I've met so many people. They're the most solid citizens of the community that you will meet. And uh, we need we need workers, we need housing. A little compassion goes a long way. I think that's the irony too, Chris, is that mm-hmm. that we need these men and women. I mean, right. it's not, right. I, I think the people who, who seem to think that the country's full and we just don't, we don't need any more. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it just doesn't reflect the reality that we see around us. We, we need more workers. And I, yeah, I cannot emphasize this enough. People in Montauk, which is so reliant on tourism are tearing their hair out over this. You know, they can't open as much, you know, seven days a week. It's, and and the, Oh, I'm the sorry. problem might is just, it brings, it brings its own stresses because you need the housing. Go ahead, Alec. No, might I just add that Hochul and um, and Mayor Eric Adams are uh, asking for the um, an expedited process um, for migrants to receive uh, legal working permits um, so that they can actually participate in the economy. And mm. while they're here in New York, uh, while they're here, you know, if they're going to be staying in the country for however long their immigration process, uh, asylum seeking process is going to be, you know, they might as well work. And it's what, six, six months that you need to, um, it, it's a certain amount of days, but it's a it's pretty long. To, yeah. What was it? 80 days? 180 days. 180 days that you have to wait um, to, you know, and be in the country before you can legally obtain work papers um, for the country. And, and I mean, personally, I think that's a that's a good idea because, man, our economy is and our job market is is really, um, really uh, popping off right now. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so there's so there's so many jobs. And yeah, it, like you well, said, I mean, um, at the same time, I mean, allow these people to support themselves, too. I mean, you know, rather than, you know, be dependent on on the generosity of, of the state. Exactly. And others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to say. Nobody's going to say you can't house people who are, you know, individually working and paying rent. I mean, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think our executive order would be meaningless then. Mm-hmm. Complicated issue, no question about it. So, 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 we have- so Chris, Chris, I, I just, I have to, I have to ask that. Does so? Does the town board? Do they? Did they read all one hundred resolutions before they passed them? Of course that's they long, did. Yeah, that's a long absolutely. meeting. Somewhat abbreviated form, but yes, yes, your your colleague Michael Wright and I were suffering through every minute of it. <laughs> and they're doing that for you residents out there. So exactly. Live on television. They are on the front lines, no question. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I, I want to give Alec a chance uh, to talk about an article we wrote this week, which I guess we would characterize as kind of a feature obituary. Is that fair? <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's fair. So yeah. tell us about tell us about uh, the profile. Uh, this is an interesting tale, I think. No pun intended. Tale, tale no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, no pun intended. Um, yeah. So uh, last week, um, the Long Island Aquarium lost uh, Jelly the Otter, the River Otter. Um, she was since uh, it, she came to the aquarium in two thousand eight, and she's been there ever since and she had two litters of pups with the aquarium and um and they they announced her passing uh last week and i just thought uh jelly's story was so inspiring um she had uh many uh, bouts with breast cancer um she had multiple surgeries to remove um to remove tumors um and i just thought it it was um it was an exceptional life of of an animal at the aquarium and and i don't think we maybe not talk enough about how much um you know when when something happens when when uh, somebody 
or when an animal in the aquarium dies, how that affects the staff as well, because, you know, they're there every day with this animal. So I, I had the opportunity um, this week to talk to um, one of Jelly's trainers um, and, and kind of uh, have, I guess, right. Yeah. A future obituary about her and, and her life uh, after she was diagnosed with breast cancer and, and went through her first surgery um the aquarium created a, a basically a breast cancer awareness and fundraising campaign um called the jelly strong movement oh um, what a wonderful thing and they had buttons that they sold um with jelly's face on them and they would raise money for um they raised money for the north fork breast health coalition and then um they transitioned to do it for um i think uh the american cancer society um, to raise money for, uh, you know, to help people um, fighting breast cancer. And I thought that it was such such a, a terrific story. And, and uh, it, <laughs> I'm sorry, the, it, it's just it, it, the attachment that that people have with the animals at the aquarium, um, especially staff members, but also like guests that come in to the aquarium and and regulars that come in and they see a specific animal and and they love them so much or they see them on social media and they love them so much and then for that um that animal to be gone is just so it's just so heartbreaking to me and um in in the river otter exhibit now it's is she actually jelly lived with uh one of her pups her son stark and now he's the one in the exhibit um but i just thought it was a terrific a terrific story and um hey they're part of the community yes part of the community you did a really nice job with it alec it's a really sweet story it's very nice on riverheadlocal.com i was gonna say you can go find that story at riverheadlocal.com we are just about out of time folks uh wide-ranging conversation this week. I really appreciate it. I want to thank our guests, Alec Lewis of Riverhead Local, Christopher Walsh of the East Hampton Star, and Beth Young of the East End Beacon. Thank you guys. We appreciate you taking some time with us today. And thank you, as always, to my co-host, Bill Sutton. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, We will be back next week on Behind Headlines. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.